0: Hello, it's Kirsty here. Uh, just to say, this is part of a special series called A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism. So please feel free to go back and listen to the earlier podcasts. If you can't be bothered, just dive in. I went on a date um, in an inflatable kayak.
1: Whose idea was the inflatable kayak date? Um, a wild cartoonist. Oh, okay. Has he done this before, do you think? Is that going to?: it? It was
0: actually brand new.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A brand new inflatable kayak. Hi- uh, <laughs> <laughs> Place Hayek, yeah, it took me on a take paddling down the river <laughs> on a blow-up neoliberal doll.
0: <laughs> Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to the new Economics Foundation's weekly economics podcast. This week we're on episode two of our mini-series, A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism. Episode two is called The House That Hayek Built and so I'll be talking to James Meadway about the people behind neoliberalism and how they made it a mainstream idea.
1: deciding factor in the war after the war came from a very unlikely source. He was an unknown. We thought we'd spend a bit of time chatting about the first meeting of the Mount Pelerin Society. His name was Friedrich A. Hayek. So that it was a very memorable meeting indeed. And it, uh, it was a remarkable collection. You have to give Friedrich Hayek full credit. He believed that there was a real possibility that Europe and America would move in the same direction as fascist Italy or Germany without the mustache. <laughs> Those are a few of us who believed in freedom and free markets and minimum
0: government, were regarded as nuts.
1: Our second guest is the Nobel laureate Friedrich von Hayek. To make making
0: people equal a goal of governmental policy would force government to treat people very unequally indeed. okay James so in the last of our um, a beginner's guide to neoliberalism episodes we talked a bit about how these ideas have become the dominant way of organizing capitalism since the, about the late 70s in this episode we're gonna delve into a little bit more of the story um, but first can you just remind our listeners what we mean by neoliberalism and and why it's actually different to
1: capitalism well what we're talking about here is is the rules of the game of capitalism that you you can kind of play the same game but change the rules over time if you think about uh, well rugby where I'm from the Play rugby league. This is a different set of rules to playing rugby union like you get down in the south. It's the same game, but you change the rules around and things uh, end up working out quite differently. This is exactly what you get with neoliberalism. There are other rules you could have to run capitalism. The rules that we have are neoliberal and stress, privatisation, free markets, and uh, allowing corporations and the wealthy you know, the, the space to do their thing as far as possible.
0: My dad will be very pleased about that hat tilt to rugby league. Thank you. So you mentioned a bit in the last episode about the thinkers behind neoliberalism. And one of those was Friedrich von Hayek. Uh, Who was he? And why did he start uh, looking into these things?
1: Well, Friedrich von Hayek is is hugely influential. I mean, probably the, the decisive figure in the, in the history of neoliberal thought. He's uh, an Austrian economist, he's an economist from Austria, literally in, in this case, who um, reacted to the, the crisis of the 1930s, the sort of disintegration of capitalism, the collapse of, of global trade, the rise of very, very state interventionist uh, governments, the New Deal in America, uh, fascism potentially in Germany and Europe. And his, his reaction to this is to try and think about about how you might get the free market capitalism, or at least its values still to function in a world where the state was having to intervene on a large scale. So it's like, how do you deal with the fact that the old version of liberal capitalism that you had particularly before the First World War with minimal state intervention, little interference uh, from democratic and socialist parties in how markets operate, how do you reconfigure the values of that system, the liberal values of free trade and all the rest of it, so it functions in a world where the State is big and you have to deal with lots and lots of competing demands. And that's really his way of thinking about things and how you might kind of repurpose the old version of liberalism, turn it into this new neoliberalism, and that's how you might run capitalism better, in his view.
0: OK, but his ideas weren't actually initially very popular, uh, much like my uh, friend's much maligned pasty balm innovation which never really took off. Uh, what did he uh, do to
1: change that? He, he, um, he reacted rather rather badly initially to, to this sort of thing, you, you might say, that if you come out of the Second World War uh, where you have state intervention on a huge scale, you, you need it to, to win the war. You have to direct everything towards this. And then, of course, the response from electorates and from people in societies that have been hit by this war was that they really didn't want to go back to the 1930s. They wanted instead at at, yeah, at least a capitalism with those rough edges taken off so you get the development of the welfare state, the development of the National Health Service in this country, and similar things happening across the Western world at that point in time. So his ideas that what you really wanted was a kind of return to, to the values of free market capitalism was just completely rejected uh, by most people at, at that point in time, in the 1940s. So he kind of retreats to the mountains, uh, literally, they, they go off to a Swiss village, uh, Mont Pelerin, uh, with some of his you know kind of closest uh, comrades, if you like, his fellow thinkers in this, and they devise this sort of elite project to think about their ideas, to develop their ideas, to refine them and gradually persuade people at the top of society more than everybody else that this would be a better way of running the world. It'd be more in their interests to have a more kind of free market, neoliberal way of running society than this kind of Keynesian state interventionist way that, that was now in place.
0: Okay, James. So we're talking about the, the Mont Pelerin society here, which which uh, sounds a little bit like a conspiracy theory, a bunch of economists up a mountain talking about ideas. Um, you can you just give us a bit more detail about who was invited and what they uh, were planning to do to influence
1: those elites? Well, the invitation was extended to people who who believed in the values of the free market, fairly broadly defined initially. And there's quite a, quite a mixed bunch of turns up. I mean, the, the philosopher of science, Karl Popper was there, Milton Friedman, who is a, is a name that recurs uh, repeatedly. Uh, in the history of neoliberalism, he was there in some of the early meetings. And they're there not so much to try and think about, in fact, fairly explicitly not to think about how they influence the great mass of people, but to develop what they think is a, a sort of scholarly atmosphere to refine their ideas and to persuade a few people. And in doing so, because you persuade a few powerful people, you can gradually spread your, your influence in this way. So you end up out of Mont Pelerin, you end up with um, a bunch of think tanks uh, being set up uh, across the world from the really from the 50s onwards. The first one is the Institute of Economic Affairs in, in London, set up in 1958 by Anthony Fisher, a man originally considering being a Conservative MP, so convinced he was by Hayek's uh, short book, The Road to Serfdom. Hayek persuaded him not to be an MP, but to set up a think tank so he could influence MPs. Uh, and of course, it's you know it's very largely worked. Andrew Marr describes the Institute of Economic Affairs as, as the single most influential think tank in the history of British politics. But there are other institutions set up around the world. So gradually you get this kind of trickling out of these sets of ideas through the 50s. 50s, 60s and into the 70s. They're not particularly popular in wider society. They're not even necessarily popular uh, at the top of society, but nonetheless, the effort is being made to spread these ideas.
0: Okay. Um, So... um uh, much as you've just described, the Institute of Economic Affairs has been incredibly influential. We know a lot of think tanks uh, and, and universities too struggle to change the way that economics works. So how did they manage to really uh, make sure their ideas took hold?
1: Well, the first one, I suppose, is is that they had the advantage that if you're trying to persuade um, very powerful people that the world is better if very powerful people are allowed to do more or less what they want without all these various restrictions, tedious restrictions like taxes and regulation and, and the rest of it, then you've automatically, got a bit of an advantage. I mean, already uh, by 1958, you know, 26 of the largest, 50 largest American corporations were funding uh, the free market American Enterprise Association. So it's quite a lot of enthusiasm for this sort of thinking from really quite an early stage. The breakthrough for them comes when you get this crisis in the other sets of the rules of the game for capitalism, which starts to appear in the the 1970s, that suddenly what seemed to be a very good way of running capitalism, this kind of Keynesianism, this state intervention, uh, Uh, this idea that governments can change economic outcomes, the idea that you tax uh, wealthy people especially uh, heavily, that all of this suddenly, after years of growth and years of things seeming all right, starts to break down from the late 60s into the early 70s onwards. And that's where they take their opportunity uh, to really push for their version of how the world should be run.
0: Okay. And they they actually looked over to South America, to Chile, to um, essentially create a lab for neoliberalism. Uh, What did they do that?
1: Well, the, the story in Chile is uh, the, the the starting point for, for this one, that you had the election in 1970 of uh, Salvador Allende, who is a, a Marxist, who is uh, elected as part of the popular unity government with a plan to transform Chile into a socialist society. Now, immediately, uh, this meets a response, and it's very clear now, from the US uh, State Department, who are not happy about this at all. Immediate pressure is applied to, to the endo regime. This uh, produces all sorts of economic dislocation and general sort of problems for the economy there. Uh, At the same time, of course, there is a steady move towards what eventually becomes the uh, coup of the 11th of September 1973, when Augusto Pinochet takes over and immediately looks towards the best set of anti-socialist ideas he can find, which happens to be a bunch of Chilean economists from the University of Chicago, heavily influenced by the ideas of neoliberalism, and indeed who had already a ready-prepared plan developed in the late 1960s on how you might transform Chile into the ideal economy from the point of view of free market capitalism, which is what he sets about doing uh, from his time in office. Okay, so what kind of influence did all this stuff happening in Chile have on the rest of the world? Well, well, Chile looks initially like a little bit of an isolated case. I mean, there's a very particular set of circumstances with the uh, Allende government, with the military coup, with being in Latin America. It kind of looks a little bit like an outlier. The bit that provides the breakthrough for neoliberalism in general is this, as I mentioned, the crisis that the former rules of the game and capitalism runs into from the 60s into the 70s onwards. So it's a crisis centred in, in a few different parts, uh, one of which is the falling profits uh, of large corporations and businesses in general right the way across the Western world. There's a slowdown in growth. There's rising unemployment. There's something that the Keynesians at the time said couldn't possibly happen, which is you're getting inflation appearing at the same time as unemployment. So this gets called stagflation. And there's an intellectual crisis, associated with this in that people can't think how to make this Keynesian system work under these circumstances. So in response to the intellectual crisis, you get neoliberalism suddenly starts to look like a a coherent and credible intellectual alternative in the large developed economies coming through the 1970s. And of course, you have these institutions and well-placed people able to argue for these sets of ideas when the crisis happens.
0: Okay, James, well, we're going to have to leave it there. You've mentioned my favourite kind of inflation-related word, which is stagflation. Sounds a little bit like a monster. Anyway, thank you so much, James, for taking the time to speak to us yet again. Thank you.
1: The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, an independent think tank and charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org.
0: We'll be back at the same time next week.